Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Rich. Hey, good to be back. And Jen. Hi, good to be here. We're going to talk today about something that you might not be familiar with, but which is um, the 100th anniversary of this event is coming up, and it's actually something pretty major in American history. It is the largest armed uprising since the American Civil War on U.S. soil. It is the Battle of Blair Mountain, which took place in West Virginia in August 1921, and um, you know, really was the height of the coal wars that took place in that part of the country during that time of the 20th century. Um, my knowledge on this is, you know, cobbled together from Wikipedia, but uh, the two of you do know something more about what all happened. Um, Rich, maybe it'd be best to start with you. Where does this all come from? Why did things get so violent in West Virginia in 1921? You might be familiar with the expression from, from journalism, you know, don't pick fights with people who buy ink by the barrel. Uh, there, I, I think a similar expression is don't pick <laughs> fights with people who use dynamite by the ton. Uh, you know, the, these miners uh, for the, you know, the previous uh, almost 50 years um, had been fighting a, a long battle against capitalists who were trying to, you know, really suppress their wages, really limit their, uh, their earning power. Um, and really try to govern, you know, how they act, they worked in the mines themselves. And the reason these wars lasted so long, in part, was because uh, it was very difficult for uh, the coal operators to impose work rules on the coal mines. Uh, that is to say, unlike in a factory, unlike an office, you can't really monitor someone when they're underground. Um, they're kind of left to their own devices, their their own sort of wisdom and knowledge of how to how to work a mine. And attempts to, to regulate that are met with uh, predictable responses. You know, I, I can certainly go into the work of coal mining later if you want. But suffice to say, uh, these were fiercely independent people um, used to working it for themselves and determined to claim as much value from the, you know, the hard, dangerous work they did as possible. Um, and the result of this was a really sustained series of wars across American coal fields and the Appalachians um, in particular, but also in places like Colorado. Um, that really climaxed in 1921 at, at Blair Mountain. This was the real, uh, almost you know, volcanic explosion of a long series of violent conflicts. And wars really is the right word for them. Um, these were gunfights fought between miners and often the local police or a detective agency or the army itself. In some cases, um, we, we talked uh, many a couple of years ago now on this show about the anthracite strike in Pennsylvania in 1903, which turned violent. Um, you know, this is a period of American history where it was not uncommon to see these labor conflicts turn into, you know, bloody feud. And, and with Blair Mountain in particular, one of the things that I think gets overlooked is a lot of the miners involved were World War I veterans 
Um, one, they still had their World War I weapons. Uh, they held on to their rifles from that conflict. And for, for what their thought process was at the time, they had fought the war to end all wars. At the time, that's what the thinking of World War I was. Uh, and then to, to come home and have to fight these battles for your own basic liberties, um, I, I think that put a lot of extra weight on it for them, I would imagine. Um, to have fought abroad and then to come home and only a few years later have to fight here. Yeah, definitely. Um, maybe something to rethink when it comes to letting veterans keep all their weapons. Could be. Well, in, in this case, I support it. So, yeah, coal, coal, as you can imagine, was a vital war industry. I mean, it was just vital to everything. That, that's what's so interesting about coal is that you, mm-hmm. you need it for... Uh, to power everything about the industrial revolution. Um, so like the bituminous coal they're mining in West Virginia is used from uh, everything from, you know, powering the trains that carried it out of the mountains to making the iron and the steel, um, you know, that, you know, manufactured those trains, you know, right down to the very level of providing the cooking fuel for uh for the women whose unpaid labor, you know, made it possible for their men to work on the ground for 12 hours a day, digging this coal up in the first place, you know, to wash their clothes and provide them with their meals as well. So from everywhere to the, you know, sort of petty consumer to the big mass, massive industrial consumer, coal was just an ubiquitous part of their life. Um, and because it was so important, not just as a war industry, but, you know, as a domestic industry during the war, uh, the Wilson administration bought labor peace basically by regulating prices and regulating labor um, labor conditions more or less in, in the benefit to the benefit of the miners. Um, and so, you know, just to build on Jen's point, you know, not only was it that they returned home after this war to end all wars, they returned home to uh, a Wilson administration that suddenly no longer cared about these things that removed all the wartime, uh, the wartime regulations basically set things back to the laissez-faire, let the operators determine prices and wages like they had before the war. And the response was you know, predictable. There was a massive uprising, not just in the coal fields, but nationwide. Uh, you know, period 1919, 1920 is known as a red scare. It's also a general strike. You know, there's a strike wave across the country that's, that's feeding into the, this broader context of what happens um, in the Appalachian coal fields as well. Definitely. Um, you know, th- this isn't something that I-, I think a lot of people hear about in history books and history classes today. It's something that has sort of got- gotten buried under the rug in some respects as far as the things that shaped this country to be the way it is now. And yet here we have these you know, real battles that, uh, you know, nobody talks about effectively in mainstream coverage. Yeah, one of, for me, one of the things that um, my my work in this area came from is an anger that I had not learned about it sooner. <laughs> um, you know, I received what I believe to be a pretty good education in American history. Uh, it's, you know, everyone in my family is very interested in American history, and I didn't hear this even mentioned until I was, I think, 24, 25 years old. I saw it in passing somewhere online, and I was like, hey, what's that? And it's one of those things where the deeper you dig, the angrier you get, because you're just like, how have they not discussed this ever with me here in, you know, in New York, in a northern area? I'm sure in West Virginia, this is part of the common education. 
Um, but, but here it was just never mentioned. Blair Mountain itself is on the National Register of Historical Places, but like you, it's not a tourist attraction the way like Gettysburg <laughs> or Antietam are. It's, it's not part of that like common American heritage that we get taught for sure. And you know, probably it should be. And only a few years ago, they were actually, <laughs> a few years ago, they were actually fighting to have it removed from the Register of Historic yeah. Places so they could mine coal there again. Yep. Because we don't learn. Right. Um, now, to sort of set the stage for what took place in 1921, you have to look at sort of the conditions that these miners were operating under. Obviously, coal mining is backbreaking work. We know much more now than even then the sort of health effects it can have on people. But even then, it was understood that miners' lives were not going to be pleasant. They were going to end up covered in soot and, you know, working in the dark underground for these long shifts, because this was in a pre-1935 America where your right to a union was not guaranteed. And in fact, many towns and uh, companies in West Virginia banned people who were parts of unions. It was something that you could lose your job and in a company town, lose your residence for. And so these unions had to fight for their very recognition, their ability to bargain on behalf of workers, because that was not guaranteed to them under the law. Yeah, one of the big recurring things you see is those yellow dog contracts, where to even get the job, you have to promise that you will not join the union or fraternize with members of the union, um, which is just such a heavy blow to have to overcome to begin with, uh, even to get to that point where you can actually start collectively bargaining. Yeah, one, one of the one of the things that's important about the coal fields is that, of course, they're where they are. You know, wherever they're wherever there happened to be a swamp millions of years ago, and then the Appalachian Mountains compressed over them. You know, that's where the coal happened to be. So, um, you know, you mentioned Ryan that they built these company towns. These places were, you know literally owned by the company, you know, you paid your rent to the, the same person who employed you. Um, and, you know, you went to these relatively isolated places, especially in, you know, Appalachia, West Virginia, you know, the, the only, the only rail lines out of towns are the ones hauling the coal. Um, so if you lost your job, you know, by doing something like, you know, joining a union, you also got thrown out of your home um, and you also got blacklisted. So if you try to get a, a coal mining job in the next town over, you know, even if it was a different coal operator working the mine, your name was on that list um, and they, they just wouldn't hire you. Um, and so, you know, there, what you see in 1920, 1921 is a major campaign by the United Mine Workers of America uh, under its new president at the time, John L. Lewis, uh, whose name, you know, w- would become famous in the 1930s, one of the founders of the CIO, um, attempting to organize those southern West Virginia coal fields, which had resisted unions uh, for so long, uh, was one of his key early campaigns, uh, and, you know, sets the stage, uh, you know, for this con- conflict, you know, and th- that's not to say that this was a union swooping in and trying to force unionism on people who didn't want it. You know, these, these were miners who, uh, are what organizers would now call a hot shop. Uh, that is to say they wanted a union and the, you know, my United Mine mm-hmm. Workers of America was the most prominent, uh, coal miners union at the time. And so, you know, there was kind of a, a shared interest in building union power in Logan County and Mingo County and, you know, elsewhere in Southwestern West Virginia. And I think that's a good note about, you know, the mines are where they are. This is where the coal is. 
uh, which meant that West Virginia in particular was situated sort of in the middle of some other union areas like in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Kentucky, where they had made progress a lot sooner. So they could sort of see their neighbors just across the border and say, hey, we want that for ourselves. This is this is what we want to participate in. Talk a bit about some of the historical figures in all this conflict. Um, Rich, you mentioned John L. Lewis would go on to found the CIO, but um, this this in West Virginia here. There's also you, you see Mother Jones, who um, her name is now being used for a publication that uh, some would say does not deserve her name, but. Um, you know, what can we say about the figures involved in this conflict? So one of the one of the really big figures who has almost been mythologized um, in, in the region uh, is a sheriff, Sid Hatfield, um, who was a local sheriff who became an icon to the miners just for being on their side, which is something that you could not at all take for granted with the local law enforcement. He was a hero to the miners, in part because a lot of times if there was an eviction to be carried out, if a family was to be kicked out of their homes, uh, he would simply refuse to do it. Uh, Sometimes it is literally that simple. You just say, no, I don't want any part of that. But he, unfortunately, was assassinated on the footsteps of the uh, McDowell County Courthouse by members of the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency after he was put on trial for refusing to carry out an eviction. Uh, And that was another boiling point that was reached was that not only had... um, they, they had lost someone who had stood up for them. It was done brazenly in public. His wife was next to him and was nearly killed. Um, it, was, it was an incredibly dramatic moment and a point where I think you sort of reach that tipping point. Like there's no going back once you've done that. Yeah, with, with Sid Hatfield in, in particular, like he really, you know, like you said, he was the, the, the kind of exception to the rule that the sheriffs worked for the coal companies. Um, and, you know, the reason he was on the footsteps in the, in the county courthouse that day was because he was on trial for his role in the, uh, the Maywan massacre, uh, which is when he and, you know, other miners got into a gunfight with those, those private detectives from Baldwin Feltz uh, in the town of Maywan, uh, West Virginia, uh, over a separate incident related to the, the Coalfield massacre. So the, the tensions over Maywan and what happened there, and then the fact that these Baldwin Feltz agents gunned him down in public uh, and we're not going to face any consequences for it all, for it at all, you know, contributed to uh, this, this sense of grievance in the sense that, you know, we have to take this into our own hands if we're going to win a union um, as well. You know, just, just as a brief aside, you know, speaking to the, the pop culture uh, element of this, Mate One uh, was a movie in the late 1980s that features Sid Hatfield as one of its protagonists. Mm-hmm. Um, and the United Mine Workers uh, organizer, I forget, I forget the name of the character now, um, as you know, one of the other major protagonists, a rare labor movie in American history that I think you know that is worthwhile seeing. Um, Ryan, you asked about Mother Jones. Uh, For sure, Mother Jones was another uh, key figure in the labor wars, particularly the coal wars of the late nineteenth century. She was a uh, a fiery, charismatic public speaker um, who made her reputation for really whipping crowds up and whipping union membership up um, through the, the sheer force of her 
uh, her rhetoric and her personality. Um, you know, she could sh- she could show up at a place and basically convince everyone there that the, the best means for them to go forward or, were to join the union. Um, and so even though she was 83 years old in, in 1921, when she showed up in the southern uh, the southern West Virginia coal field, she was still as, as fiery and uh, uh, charismatic as ever. Um, and she she played at a you know, she was sent there for that purpose. That was her job was to kind of like be the avant-garde of the union movement in an area, really whip up that support, um, you know, build up that membership and prepare the men uh, to fight. Uh, And actually that put her in an awkward position because when the men were like, listen to her too well, and were like, let's take our World War I weapons and form an army and, you know, then go and go and look in county. She's like, no, no, don't do that. Uh, You're going to get outgunned. Uh, But, you know, unfortunately in that respect did not listen to her. Um, but, you know, otherwise a very significant figure in the labor movement yeah. name, does de- deserve to be divorced from that liberal rag that unfortunately carries her name to this day. <laughs> yeah. And I think that moment when she said, no, you cannot do this, lay down your weapons, go home, do not try to do this. Um, a lot of the men took that as kind of a betrayal. Uh, They thought that, you know, she was going back on what she had promised them, on what they had interpreted as what she wanted them to do. Um, There's a a great book on the topic written by a William Blizzard, the son of Bill Blizzard, who was one of the the leaders at the time, um, where when Mother Jones said to lay down your weapons and and go home, um, there was no greater loss of morale than that moment. Um, because this was the woman who had led them up to that point and had promised them so much. Now, you both have mentioned now this uh, Baldwin Phelps Detective Agency. What are we talking about when we say detective agency in this context? Because these aren't police officers, exactly. You know, they aren't the agents of the state. You know, what, what is the Baldwin Phelps Detective Agency? Pinkertons by another name, effectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, they're off-brand Pinkertons, uh, but they were they were so hated in the town. They were referred to as the company gun thugs um, because they were effectively private mercenaries that the company would bring in to to, to enact their will. Uh, they were paramilitary, para uh, para law enforcement agencies. Uh, they were not there to solve crimes. They were just there to to cause problems they, they were there the crimes the uh we, we've done a few episodes on the pinkertons um and yeah that, that that's right that's what they were they're like if the fbi and cia were combined together into one private organization run by the coal organization they're hired by the core coal organizations i should say and their you know their job wasn't to you know their job was to do things like infiltrate unions uh act as agents provocateur um you know, do everything in their power to like disempower and, and discredit the unions. So the coal operators could continue, could continue to run open shop mines. Um, you know, I think Jen eloquently said they, they were very hated figures for, uh, for that. And were um, almost more out of control than even the Pinkertons were, as you can see in kind of like the, the gunfights at Matewan and, and you know, the, the County courthouse steps. Yeah. Can you go into a bit more detail about Mate One and what happened there? Yeah, so in Mate One, um, they had brought in these agents, uh, Baldwin Feltz agents, um, 
and they were carrying out evictions, like you noted, with it being a company town, the company owned your housing, and they could evict you at any time for any reason they wanted effectively. Um, so at one point, Sheriff Hatfield was was brought in to assist with these evictions, um, and he determined that they actually had an illegal warrant to do so. He said, no, actually, it is illegal for you to do this eviction right now. Uh, and the uh, the mayor of town, Mayor Testerman, actually did it, did uh, say that they had a fake warrant and had forged his signature on it. Uh, so they got into a standoff about it, about whether or not these families would be evicted, and they had a gunfight uh, in which I believe one of the actual the Baldwin Feltz brothers, who was one of the founders of the organization, was killed, if I'm not mistaken. Um and that led to the ensuing trial where uh, Sid Hatfield was put on trial for murder and found innocent. So that, that was 1920. Mm-hmm. About a year later, we have this battle of Blair Mountain. And what incited that? What really was the uh, spark on this tinderbox? So within uh, Mingo County, West Virginia, um, the, the, agencies, uh, they called for backup from the West Virginia National Guard, um, as well as the U.S. Army, and they declared martial law in Mingo County. No one could go in or out. They instated a curfew. People could not leave their homes except to go dig coal out of the mines. Um, And the miners in neighboring counties, um, Logan, McDowell, uh, etc., they decided to go march to liberate their compatriots in Mingo County. Um, And they converged at Blair Mountain, uh, which is in Logan County. Um, And well, the U.S. Army and National Guard seeing several thousand, I want to say three to four thousand armed miners marching their way. They did not take kindly to that. (laughs) Uh, And they actually called in um, aerial bombers that had been used in in World War I uh, and dropped. This is one of the most horrifying phrases I discovered in my my research. Leftover gas and explosive bombs from the war, which raises the question of why did they have those? But, you know, that's another issue entirely. And the gas used in World War One was, um, you know, not good. No, it was actually banned by the Geneva Conventions only three years later. Yeah, I was just going to say, we haven't had the Geneva Convention yet. So, like, all this gas was still perfectly legal and uh, re- remains. Oh, as well. yeah. Even against your own citizens in this case. Um, th- this was a period of American history where, you know, the state was cracking down on left-wing dissent and left-wing uh, radicalism, especially within the labor movement. Um, just a couple years before, you saw the Palmer raids led by Woodrow Wilson um, to sort of root out anarchists from within um, these labor organizations. Uh, this is, you know, Rich, you talked about the first Red Scare. This is that period of history. So the workers here are really up against it. They have not not just their companies to fight against, not just their companies' mercenaries to fight against, but the government itself, which is not very receptive to their calls for union recognition and like better working conditions. 
Yeah, and you know, one facet of the Red Scares is it's not just that they were they were targeting you know anarchists and union members. You know, of course, that's what they were. They were specifically targeting uh, immigrant anarchists, immigrant uh, socialists, immigrant labor organizers. Um, you know, people like Emma Goldman, who was born in Europe and you know became a, an anarchist as an immigrant in the United States, was expelled to the Soviet Union famously. Um, Big Bill Haywood, who was not uh, was you know nonetheless exiled from the country. Um, it's important to understand, you know, even in the coal fields of West Virginia, uh, this was a multi-ethnic, multi-racial working class working in the coal mines. Uh, there was a large uh, Italian board population there. Uh, there was a large population of Black uh, Americans um, who migrated into West Virginia um, to work these coal fields as well, um, and so. Part of what was so scary for the United States government uh, was the thought of uh, these foreign-born, you know, quote-unquote ethnic whites and native-born Black Americans forming together into these multiracial unions um, and building, uh, you know, a sort of countermeasure to white Anglo-Saxon Protestant supremacy, uh, you know, that was the the norm at the time. Um, And so, you know, that's why you know, you see the National Guard come out. That's why you see uh, the, you know, the Army Air Force, I guess it was still at the time, and Billy Mitchell, you know, provide airplanes to uh, observe and then, of course, bomb um, bomb the, uh, the, the the striking miners. Um, one, one thing that struck me from reading the sources was it, it wasn't just people from West Virginia coming together. It was, uh, it was miners from Ohio and Kentucky were also converging in solidarity to join these, you know, kind of, makeshift militias they formed, you know, you know, several thousand men uh, working together um, to, you know, hold lines and, you know, fight kind of like trench warfares, except in the hollers of West Virginia instead of, you know, the fields of uh, Eastern France. Yeah, one thing that I do love to, um, to to build on that note about it being a multiracial, multiethnic type of environment, a lot of people do tend to assume that, oh, it was just all white men. It absolutely wasn't. Uh, and that, you know, many of them who we see as white now were not perceived as white at the time. But only a year or two after the battle, the United Mine Workers actually uh, at their national convention, they had put in a clause of their union membership that you could not be a member of their union and the KKK. They actually, that was when they expelled all KKK members from uh, from their union membership in 1922 or 23, uh, which is which is pretty early to start seeing things like that. Uh, so it's another one of those things that people sort of have that preconceived notion uh, that is just blatantly not true for the time. Rich, you talked about how in West Virginia, it was Italians and uh, African-Americans making up this coal mining base. But in other states, it would have been, uh, you know, different Europeans. Uh, I know in Minnesota and the copper mining, there were a lot of Finns and Swedes and Norwegians. Um, So there was often this language barrier even for, you know, worker solidarity in these coal mining towns um, that they had to grapple with. So... We have this uh, setting of thousands of miners, armed miners at Blair Mountain. The Army's there. Baldwin Phelps Detective Agency is there. What happens next? So the battle took uh, place over the course of of seven days, uh, largely guerrilla warfare on the part of the miners who they knew those mountains like the back of their hands because you had to. (laughs) 
um, versus the outside forces who were at a bit of a disadvantage because of that, even though they had obviously superior numbers and, and superior armature. So the, the casualties mercifully were, were fairly low. Um, although I think upwards of a hundred coal miners were killed in the battle. Um, in the aftermath, there were over a thousand arrests for treason, uh, because, you know, it is of course treasonous to America to fight for your rights. We don't, we don't do that here. Um, when you describe casualties as being pretty low and also over a hundred killed, it sort of gives a sense of the scope of this fighting. Yeah, absolutely. It was at least over 3000 miners. Um, so I think to, to quote unquote, get away with as few deaths as they had, as horrible as that sounds, uh, is kind of miraculous given what they were up against. Just, you know, for listeners, imagine if 100 workers were killed in a strike today and the sort of reaction that would get, you know, how would people respond? It's to, and now a hundred years later, this is something that you probably haven't heard of. Mm-hmm. Or on, on that same token, imagine if the, the striking workers at Frito Lay uh, had armed themselves and you know marched from the factory to the bosses' houses, uh, you know to you know assert their union rights and uh, you know try to you know uh, assert you know assert the rights as Americans or as, as you know basic workers. You know, imagine the the kind of outrage you would mm-hmm. see from the, the press. Uh, and would it surprise you to learn that in, in 1921 that the press was almost in lockstep against the, this mob of uh, armed workers um, daring to defy the federal government? If you if you look in the sources, the only the only real sources of support for um, for these workers was unsurprisingly in, in the socialist newspapers that still existed in, in 1921. Just for listeners who might not be aware, um, Frito Lay workers in Topeka, Kansas, are on strike. Uh, protesting over 84 hour weeks that they have to work there, um, not having any off days. Those are 12 hours, seven days a week and, you know, hot, humid conditions in the warehouse in Kansas, um, our solidarity with them, of course. Um, back to, you know, the history at hand, so to speak. Um, so take, let's continue down this uh, historical event here. Yeah, so August 25th is when uh, when the march began, uh, and it is considered to have ended on September 2nd or 3rd, uh, when the miners did finally surrender and go home. Uh, many of them buried their weapons in the mountains, so they would not be caught with them on their way home. We are still finding caches of those buried weapons today, uh, which can be very exciting. Uh, the, the area was absolutely littered with um, both exploded and unexploded bombshells, which were, were used as evidence at the trials. There were over a thousand arrests for treason, uh, as noted, but because the local juries were so sympathetic to the miners, hardly any of them were actually convicted of it. And, and it was a real blow because it was definitely considered a loss. I mean, the the miners did not get their demands. They did not get safer conditions out of this. The the coal operators were uncowed and un, unabashed to to keep treating their their workers like worse than animals. Um, so it was it was a big setback in the region. 
Yeah, you mentioned that the bombs were used as evidence. Uh, they were often used as evidence for uh, acquittal, actually. Uh, there's, there's a famous picture of the miners yeah. kind of displaying one of the bombs that were dropped on them. Uh, that It was either exploded and, uh, you know, it was just the remaining shell fragments or like an unexploded piece of ordnance, which uh, I wouldn't bring into a courtroom, but, you know, they, they were tougher back then, I guess. Uh, but, you know, the, then they would present these before, you know, the juries would be like, this is what they dropped, they dropped on us, you know. I think one of my favorite facts that I learned in all of this, one of those things that's just people have always been people. Uh, at one point when a bunch of the men were scheduled to be put on trial, um, they actually played a baseball game against the local minor league team. And the announcers, um, in announcing the miners' positions, would also announce how much their bail was. You know, Bill Blizzard, shortstop, bail set at $33,000. And I'm like, you know what? People have always been people. The idea of these same miners being involved in literally minor league baseball is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, something. Um now, you, you talked about the trials that took place after um, with, you know, a thousand people arrested on charges that went as high as treason. It, it, something that struck me in reading about this is that for the most part, they didn't spend very long in prison at all. I think by, the, uh, by 1925, all of them were out of prison, which is like... Another thing where if you consider that in the context of our current laws and our current uh, attitudes towards this sort of thing, these people would have spent their entire lives behind bars in all likelihood had it happened today. It's um, sort of striking the uh, disparity there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, One of the (laughs) one of the wildest quotes I think I found was from the deputy governor of West Virginia at the time who had said something else this is America. We can't fight the government. It's like, (laughs) do you hear yourself, sir? Um, But yeah, I think some of that is what led to those short sentence times is this idea of there is kind of an American virtue of rising up against the government. Uh, And I think they held some more of that than we do today. And a jury of their peers at the time would have been people also living in these mining towns yes. and also, you know, having no favoritism towards the companies involved. Absolutely. And then, you know, something, you know, also worth considering, too, is like the fact that Jen mentioned the, the, the mining companies won. Um, and so, you know, the, mm-hmm. there was no there was no need to, like, set an example or, like, you know, make make a display of, of punishment. Um, they, they defeated the miners thoroughly. Um, and so, you know, even, even the ones who, um, you know, did get guilty pleas or who did, were, were found guilty of, you know, whatever crimes were the state tried to tack onto them. Um, you know, they, they could afford to let them go and uh, reasonably expect that they wouldn't return to their, uh, their revolutionary ways when they returned back home. It was thought of as scaring them straight in a way. Yeah. And, and one of the things that um, you see repeatedly mentioned in the aftermath is um, propaganda campaigns afterwards to the, the exact wording used was to inculcate the values of capitalism in the populations of West Virginia, which I think, as we can see in modern times, has in many ways been 
a very successful propaganda effort. Um, but I think one of the reasons it's so important to talk about this is because we know that it wasn't always like that and it doesn't always have to be like that. Um, we're going to take a little break here, but when we come back, we'll talk a bit about the lasting impacts of the Battle of Blair Mountain, both on the union itself, the workers involved, and you know what we should think about it today, 100 years later. You know, Why does it still matter? We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Rich and Jen. Hey. We spent the first 40 minutes of the show talking about uh, the Battle of Blair Mountain, which took place nearly 100 years ago now, um, in August 1921. And I wanted to sort of use this last segment of the show to talk about, you know, the aftermath of it. You know, this is something where 100 people died. It was this bloody battle between miners and a detective agency and the U.S. Army. Um, but, you know, what came from it? for the miners themselves, for their union and their union's efforts at getting recognition. Um, you know, what, what happened to the United Mine Workers following the Battle of Blair Mountain? So in, in the aftermath of uh, Blair Mountain, uh, the leader, John L. Lewis, the United Mine Workers, um, you know, was facing the fact that they had suffered a, a catastrophic defeat um, and, you know, had to start thinking about tactics that would allow them to win against a government that, as they saw very plainly in 1921, was willing to gas and bomb mine workers in order to force them to continue digging coal. And so, you know, the period of the 1920s, you know, in general kind of terms of labor history, American labor history at least, uh, are generally considered pretty quiet periods. You know, you don't see a lot of strikes, you don't see a lot of unrest. Um, but historians, you know, analyzing the period since have instead found that it's a period of Unions kind of quietly building power or rebuilding power, uh, we should say. Um, and with the Great Depression and with uh, the election of Franklin Roosevelt in 1932, um, you suddenly see this efflorescence of labor power uh, in the 1930s in the form of the CIO, um, who, one of whose key leaders was United Mine Workers Association President John Lewis. Um, and that's not a coincidence. Lewis um, was spending the intervening years inserting the mine workers and inserting other unions into the political power and political processes of the United States. Um, so before this period, there's a deep, as you, for reasonable reasons, a deep suspicion of political, the political parties, Democrat or Republican. You know, we're so used to considering unions as kind of an arm of the Democratic Party at this point that, you know, it, it's, it's almost hard to imagine a period where they weren't. Um, but it's largely the efforts of John L. Lewis and others to make labor a, a key part of the Democratic Party coalition uh, and the, Frank, the Franklin Roosevelt, at least, Democratic Party coalition that allow them to reassert their uh, reassert some form of power. Um, so come the 1930s, come the New Deal, come the, the CIO and its industrial unions, labor merges up again and 
for the next 20, 30 years has a power uh, it's never had to that point in American history. Um, and so, you know, even though the, the Battle of Blair Mountain was a defeat, it was in many ways a Pyrrhic victory for the mining companies and for uh, industrial capitalism in general, um, because the, the lessons the union learned from it, you know, for better or for worse, you know, considering the relation between labor and Democrats today, uh, allowed them at least this period of uh, historic victory. Jen, do you have anything to add to that? <laughs> no, I mean, that's a great in- encapsulation of what was happening at the leadership level, at the national level. Um, down, if we look at more like the local level, like what happened on the ground in West Virginia, um, a lot of things did not change, <laughs> um, to, to put it bluntly. Things were still pretty terrible in the, in the mining towns for a very long time afterwards. Um, and I think there was kind of a mass disillusionment in a way. Um, and then we also see that, um, again, those propaganda campaigns where um, they were inculcating the values of capitalism, as I said, and again, elsewhere in the country, where um, you start to see more of that idea of West Virginia is backwards, West Virginia is regressive, West Virginia is a lost cause uh, for the left, um, which I don't think was necessarily ever true. Um, And it certainly isn't now. Uh, but there was a very real thought for a very long time that it just wasn't worth bothering with, which is kind of heartbreaking given how much they sacrificed for that cause. We saw just a few years ago, the teachers in West Virginia went on strike in this Red for Ed campaign. And it was a reminder that that part of the country does have some deep union roots in its blood. Um, It is that now get overlooked because this, state consistently votes for Republican politicians. But it's, you know, even in these parts of the country, rural parts of the country, there is an understanding that, you know, workers' solidarity is a powerful thing. One one of the main epicenters of that teacher uprising, too, is, and I would argue not coincidentally, Mingo and Logan counties, uh, the, the places where these, these battles of Bear Mountain took place. There's a deep uh, deep historical memory of, of these battles and of the coal wars, uh, a deep understanding that the gun thugs, the coal miners, or the, the, the gun thugs, the coal operators are not your friends. Um, and that, you know, the bosses are bosses. It doesn't matter what industry they're in, you know, whether they're, you know, the principal, the superintendent, or, you know, the, you know, the guy who stands outside, uh, stands outside the coal mine with a gun, you know, watching the coal come past, you know, they're, they're just different shades of the same enemy. Now, Blair Mountain was one of the bloodiest of these union battles, but it was not, uh, so to speak, the war to end all labor wars in the United States. Um, after a brief uh, period of peace in the 20s, the, the 30s were, as Rich mentioned, a period of great upheaval and unrest. Um, you saw the Ford Massacre in Detroit in 1932, and um, many more uh heated battles in auto plants across the Rust Belt in the 1930s, um, even continuing on into the years in which the U.S. was part of World War II. It it isn't until you get to post-World War II and the Taft-Hartley Act that this um, sort of labor antagonism really ends in the United States and this violence (laughs) comes to an end. And, you know, you can say, obviously, that as we have on the show in the past, that the Taft-Hartley Act, the peace it achieved 
has not worked out well for unions in limiting their tactics. But this is uh, a show in which the history is often history of losses. There, there was a period after Taft-Hartley where, uh, you know, coal mining in West Virginia was actually like a pretty middle class job. You know, the, the way the United Mine Workers of the CIO succeeded in making it a path to at least, you know, some sort of middle class comfort that kind of like that promise of comfort, consumption and abundance of post-war America uh, was possible in the coal mines for, you know, 20 or 30 years after uh, after the uh, the formation of the CIO and after, you know, even the, you know, the post-war uh, period of peace and prosperity. But, you know, that that starts to go away uh, in the 1970s. Uh, with the the kind of neoliberal reaction against uh, labor power, um, there's a famous documentary, uh, Harlan County, USA, uh, that documents you know these turns against coal miner power, uh, and you know the, the attempts to revert to the way things had been to remove labor from the mines, to shut the coal mines down, um, to replace workers with technology. Um, you know that that that's really what's happening in a lot of ways with the mountaintop removal. Uh, type of mining it's they, they finally achieved the way of controlling their workers through more industrial more panopticonish for lack of a better words practices um, than were possible when the workers were underground uh, digging their holes blasting their their tunnels um, without you know too much supervision um, and so you know that that's where you know the, the coal mines are today you know not, not to be too nostalgic about what was very dangerous very um, very often deadly work um, but, you know, for the people who worked those mines and, you know, took pride in their work, uh, it was also a very serious loss, um, you know, for those places to close and, you know, those jobs to go away. Now, I can see some people tuning into Punching Out who maybe aren't regular listeners saying, you know, this is all 100 years ago. Why does it matter today? You know, what do you say to the people who, you know, feel like something like this, while a neat historical oddity maybe doesn't have relevance to America in 2021. So one of the things I always like to point out, um, you know, the conditions of the safety in the mine work and things like that, those were not the only factors that led to issues on the miners side. You know, your boss controlled where you could live. Your boss controlled the teachers at the school. Your boss controlled which doctors you could see if you could see one at all. Stop me if any of this sounds familiar, uh, where maybe things are not quite so literally at that level of control in 2021, but certainly in some industries, we're not far from it. And it's, it's especially now um, in a pandemic world, uh, the Spanish flu of 1918 was only a couple of years before this, and we are seeing many of the same issues arise from it. Um, with um, workers gaining power and gaining leverage, when in many ways, up up for the last two decades up to this point, it has been an employer's world. <laughs> and much has been made about the decline of coal in this country, and you know its political importance, and you know a lot of you know what is to be done for the people who no longer have jobs in coal country but it should be noted that there are still a lot of people working in coal and there are still coal mining strikes in this country uh you brought up during the break that uh in Alabama there's a coal strike that is now going on for months uh against a company called Warrior Met Coal um 
1,100 coal miners represented by the United Mine Workers of America, uh, you know, have been on strike protesting for a lot of these same issues, you know, better pay, better conditions, you know, trying to squeeze a little bit more out of the employer who squeezes so much from them. Absolutely. And the note about it, you know, it, it being almost August now, um, the strike is going into its fourth month. Uh, these people have not been paid for that long. It is through the efforts of the union and the families, the auxiliary, that they have been able to keep food on the table at all. I'm just going to read a bit from a Guardian article from the start of May, or rather the start of June about this strike. Quote, uh, James Trawick has worked at Warrior Met Coal for four years at the number seven mine in Brookwood. He explained miners accepted a six-dollar-an-hour pay cut and reduction in health insurance and retirement benefits during the bankruptcy process five years ago while adhering to a strict attendance policy. Quote, we were required to work six, sometimes seven days a week for 12 hours a day. We worked on a four-strike system, which meant missing four days in a year resulted in termination, said Trawick. The only thing that was accepted as an excuse was a death in the immediate family. We had to work sick with the flu and many other illnesses in fear of losing our jobs. Obviously, again, pandemic last year and ongoing in Alabama. These are the things that miners are still dealing with to this day. Uh, While there may not be gunfights over this particular union battle yet, there's definitely an echo of history in all of this. And yeah, in 2010, there was you know, a major, major mine disaster in West Virginia. Uh, 29 uh, coal miners died because Massey Energy um, was skimping on its safety standards. And, you know, just, just like with, you know, the Baldwin Feltz workers or the Baldwin Feltz detectives, you know, acting with impunity, uh, the CEO of the company, you know, was found guilty of a misdemeanor. And even then he was, he had that charge overthrown. Um, and so, you know, th- these kinds of safety violations are still omnipresent the coal companies still act like all these other extraction companies typically do which is to say suppress the workers keep wages low get as much value as they possibly can uh, from the extraction of these natural resources um, and you know leave behind only a wasteland of, of black lung and you know destroyed environments when when you know the the minerals are gone and you see it even not in extraction industries. You know, one of the big points of contention was that if there was a mine accident in, in 1921, um, they would not be permitted to go in and look for survivors. It was right back to work. And in we see with the Frito-Lay strike, one of the issues was that a man died on the line and they just carried his body out and kept working. Uh, they were not able to shut down the line for the day, which when you think about the human toll on that, like the, the mental cost of that, um, I think that's universal, whether it's a hundred years ago or today. Uh, j- just to tie a bow on the mine disaster that Rich mentioned after, you know, getting off on a technicality, Don Blankenship, the CEO of Massey Energy, who, you know, responsible for the deaths of 29 miners, uh, ran for Senate in West Virginia, largely on the platform of him having been uh, persecuted under the Obama administration. Um, he did not win, but, um, you know. There's no end to the ego of coal barons, I guess. Absolutely. We have seen that time and time again, unfortunately. It's And so you have to be wary when um, 
the leader of any company is touting themselves because there's a lot of bodies often left in their wake in you know one industry after another. Now, uh, Jen, how is it that you come to know so much about uh, Blair Mountain? You've mentioned your research at, at a couple points during this episode, but um, you know what led to that research? And uh, so, I am actually uh, by trade, I am a game designer. Uh, this sounds like a weird segue, um, but I had encountered this actually originally through poetry. Uh, there is a fantastic book called Kettle Bottom by Diane Gilliam Fisher. Um, she is a, a miner's daughter and granddaughter, and she wrote poetry from the perspective of people at this time. And one of the things about poetry that you have over nonfiction, I think it gets to the emotional truth of the situation a lot faster. And from there, I was inspired to make a tabletop role-playing game inspired by the Battle of Blair Mountain and the year leading up to it, in which you take on the role of coal miners and their loved ones, because it's not it's never just the workers who are hurt in these situations, it's entire communities. And you play out the events leading up to the battle, and you do your best to take care of each other in this horrific, uncaring circumstance. Um, so for me... It really came from a place of wanting to increase awareness and increase empathy for for what has happened here and what continues to happen. Yeah. Um, now, what, what's the name of this game? Uh, yes, the game is called The Price of Coal. We're very clever that way with the allusion to the, the human cost as well. Yeah. Um, and that is going to be on Kickstarter August 25th. Very cool. Um, before we uh, end this show, we, we do have a few minutes left uh, before the top of the hour. Um, do we have final thoughts on the legacy of the Battle of Blair Mountain and uh, you know, what listeners should take away from all of this? Yeah, Cole, Cole has a bad reputation nowadays uh, because it's not a green uh, a green energy source. And, you know, that's certainly very true. It's, it's a pollutant. It's a, it's a carbon intensifier. Uh, all the coal. Uh, that remains in the ground should stay in the ground. Um, but that doesn't mean that there isn't still mining that's going to be happening. You know, to think in a global perspective, you know, the green energy sources that, you know, the future is going to depend upon are primarily lithium, primarily other minerals that are going to be pulled from the ground um, by people working under conditions not very differently from uh, the coal miners of who fought the battles of Blair Mountain. Um, so it behooves us as uh, people interested in the rights of workers to stand in solidarity with people who are still going to be in these extraction industries to ensure that they work under the safest conditions possible and to ensure that they work, uh, they get the, the most benefit possible from the work they do. Uh, mineral companies shouldn't benefit from, you know, just having private property rights over uh, the minerals they extract or having the capitalization to invest, you know, in, in these kinds of extraction industries. The people who do the work are the ones who are matter, who matter and people who should, you know, reap the benefits of, of that labor. So, you know, insofar as the lessons we draw from Blair Mountain are the same as uh, the lessons we draw from every labor conflict, it's that we should always stand in solidarity uh, with our fellow workers of the working class, no matter what industry they are in. Yeah, definitely well said. And the only thing I would add is that it's so easy for us, especially like here in the North and uh, other regions, it's very easy to be dismissive of West Virginia or of other rural areas. Uh, it's very easy to say, write them off as a lost cause. Um, and I would I would encourage people to stop and think about who benefits when you do that, because it is not the cause. 
That's very well put by both of you. Um, we're co- going to have to end this conversation here, but I've, I've certainly learned a lot from it. Um, I, I hope listeners have as well. Um, for this week on Punching Out, I'm Ryan. I'm Rich. Looking forward to playing uh, Jen's game. And I am Jen. Thank you so much for having me. This is Punching Out. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. Every week we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work. Whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between, we want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are.